Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. We'd like to thank you for inviting us into your home here at BeniShalom.tv. And happy Hanukkah to you and your family from all of us here at the ministry. Right now we are in the process, uh, pretty much as you're watching this, uh, in the process of our Hanukkah conference that was hosted here in, uh, that's being hosted here in Norman, Oklahoma. Uh, we have still more events tomorrow on Sabbath. If you're still local in the area, we are welcoming you at the door and you can register at the door and join us for all of tomorrow's events if you are still local. Also, anyone who is not local, you can go to HanukkahEvent.com and you can uh, find the link to watch live. We are broadcasting the uh, conference and you can join us uh, through the internet and watch uh, the teachings that are taking place at the conference for a donation. Then you will give, be given access to watch those teachings. So if you can't join us in person, we invite you to join us uh, online as well. Um, as we get done with this year, coming toward the end of the year, um, we are always, uh, it's at that time of year that we're asking for that end of the year donation. We have an offer going on right now. If you go to um, donationoffer.com, you can uh, send a donation for the end of the year and we'll send you two free teachings as a thank you for your donation. And as we turn the year over, we're also looking forward to all of our events continuing through the ministry with the ministry for next year, looking at the Shavuot conference. If you go to ShavuotEvent.com, you can register for that right now as well. And also looking forward to Camp Yeshua, our Messianic Youth Summer Camp. Registration for that opens on January 1st on New Year's. So we thank you for joining us each and every week here at B'nai Shalom. We also look forward to seeing all of the brethren uh, at all of the events that we host throughout the year. We hope that you continue to uh, support this ministry and join us for all of these events as we continue to worship the Lord, uh, worship his name uh, at all times of the year weekly with the, this broadcast and also with all of the other annual feasts. So thank you once again for joining us here at B'nai Shalom. Now let us usher in the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath.
O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch HaTadonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGafen Amen Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. (laughs) Husbands, let's bless our wives. (coughs) Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given, given to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach. Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ba'elim Adonai Mi'chamocha Nedahar b'chodesh Nohorat echilot God.
there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat l'adrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael ot'hit le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et ha'shamayim v'et ha'aretz v'yom ha'shavi shavat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed. Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha, Bechol Levavcha, Ufkol Nashicha, Uvechol Meodecha. Veheyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavecha. Veshinantam lavenecha, vedepardabam beshiftecha, beyetecha, uvlechtecha, vederech ufshakbika, ufkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totafot binenecha, uketatam la mozuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Do I have a doubt that kept my forefathers out? Can I make it past the curse? Will my heart be sure when I stand at the door? Will I 
Well, I need my eyes to see. Oh, I don't know how I think. Have mercy on me. Don't let me stumble or fall. Let me have no. That will keep me out of the promise you have for me. Sometimes I'm sure. You're at the door. Then doubt comes over me. When the shofar sounds, will I stand by? Will I need my ears to be? Will I need my ears to believe? Oh, I don't I how I bleed. Have mercy on me. Don't let me stumble or fall. Let me have no. Oh, y'all break my heart, so I will start to trust you and be to trust you and be. The promise you had for me. Of the promise you had for me.
Beautiful blue sky and the fluffy white clouds floating above the mountain. Yah has shown the path through the woods of sparkling water are also beautiful. Yah has shown the path through the woods of sparkling Are also beautiful. Yeshua, you made me. I can see and I can speak. I can breathe and I can smell of your creation. How lovely your creation is. You took care of me when I was small, when I was sick. Now I know that I am healed, and no one can tell me different. Yah has shown you the path through the woods. The sparkling waters are oh so beautiful. Yah has shown you the path through the woods. The sparkling waters are oh. Yah, I ask that you help me heal the broken heart. For the time that I was given, I'm as happy as ever. But I know that I have my time is come, and I will not be afraid. Yah has shown me the path through the woods. Are also beautiful. Yah has shown the path through the woods. The sparkling waters are also beautiful. <speaking in Spanish> If you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Bereshit, in the beginning, to chapter 41, where our Torah portion will begin for this week. And as always, as you open the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha-amein Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from, from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. 
Our Torah portion this week is entitled Miketz, which means from the end or at the end. Here in Genesis 41, where it now says, at the end of two full years, Pharaoh had a dream. We're picking up our story, still following the life of Joseph. Joseph was the younger brother of all of the sons of Israel, the 11th born, and he was hated by his brethren, as we covered in last week's portion. He had a coat of many colors, and he was favored by his father Israel, and he was hated by his brothers, sold into Egypt, then he was falsely accused, thrown into prison, and then learning from maybe his mistakes of the past, he then looked to the Lord for the interpretation of dreams, and he interpreted the dreams of several fellow inmates in last at the end of last week's portion. One of them was the chief cupbearer or butler to Pharaoh. He interpreted his dream that he would be restored back to his position, and he was. And he was, so the dream happened just as Joseph had interpreted through the power of God, of course. And he asked the butler to remember Joseph, to, to remember him, to, to give a good word for him, uh, if you will. And what happens is it apparently takes two years after that, Pharaoh has a dream. And the story goes that Pharaoh has a dream. He goes to all of the magicians of Israel, or uh, of Egypt, I should say, and he tries to find the interpretation of the dream. Now, what we believe is that there were interpretations, but none of them were satisfactory to Pharaoh. And then the chief cupbearer, he's sitting there and he's talking to Pharaoh and he probably humbly spoke up and, you know, as Pharaoh, he saw Pharaoh unhappy with the interpretations. And he then says, hey, uh, if you don't mind me mentioning, there was a young Hebrew slave that was a, a prisoner back when I was in prison. And I had a dream back when I was in prison and I had and it was interpreted by this young Hebrew and it came to pass exactly as he had said. I had been restored to my uh, to my position. And so, uh, if you wish, let's go bring him. And so, Pharaoh was very excited about this, about the this new word of a young Hebrew in prison that has the ability to interpret dreams. So, before we go any further with this, I do want to talk about the title of our Torah portion here, which is very fascinating and, and a little bit of an overview. I dare say this Torah portion is arguably the most prophetic Torah portion in all of the Torah cycle. I know I've been talking about the life of Joseph, how it parallels the life of Yeshua, and all of it is a parallel uh, to future events, and it's prophetic in nature in the sense that that Joseph's life parallels Yeshua, and what happens to him will be similar to what happens to Yeshua. What happens here in this Torah portion speaks very much about the return of the Lord, the return of the Messiah, is particularly the reconciliation that will happen between Yeshua of Nazareth, the Jewish Messiah, who was rejected by his brethren when he came the first time, and then the restoration that will happen between Yeshua of Nazareth, the Messiah, and the chosen people, the, the Jews, at the end of the age, and what that reconciliation will look like. And that's exactly what is going on here. It's very interesting, our Torah portion is called Niket which means at the end. So here we are in Genesis, the book of Bereshit, which means in the beginning. And the title of this Torah portion is at the end. Now we believe that God, especially through the prophet Isaiah, he says that we believe in a God that has the power to declare the ends from the beginning. And that things that from ancient times, things that have not yet happened. And that's exactly what is going on here. That we are talking about what is going to happen at the end of the age. 
also interesting that when it says at the end of two full years, why? Why is two, I've always said there's no idle number in the scripture. What's significant about two years? Well, it's interesting in the Hebrew, what it literally says was in the Hebrew, it reads at the end of two years of days. Two years of days, like a a time, a a period of time that is associated with the number two. Now, what we could look at it here is that Yeshua, we believe that his first coming came approximately 2,000 years ago. And that we are looking for the end of the age to come. And so when you read two years of days, we're talking about some sort of time frame that exists with the numeral two. And so we could look at this and you could probably teach a, a a prophecy lesson, it's the idea of that this could be a fulfillment of prophecy that might happen maybe two years, 200 years, 2,000 years after something else took place. I told you at the end of last week's portion that we that the chronology works to where Isaac, the promised son, the grandfather of Joseph, he passed away at this time, and that Joseph, being this Messiah-like figure, he's been put into prison and he's been put away not to be seen. And then after some period of time that exists with the number two, then all these things will then be revealed. So prophetically, what we're looking at is perhaps there's a parallel to a period of time around 2,000 years after the Messiah has come the first time that we're talking about what might be happening at this time if it's a prophetic parallel. And as we go through this Torah portion, I hope to bring out some of those things, this great restoration and reconciliation between the Jewish people and Messiah Yeshua that we are looking forward to in the days even that we live now. So now back to the story specifically where we have Pharaoh who has this dream. He describes this dream in great detail, and he talks about how he has two dreams. Now, we know that whenever you have a dream and it happens twice, that there's sometimes that that's kind of a sign from God. If it only happens once, you can always question, well, that's just happenstance. I maybe ate a little something weird before I went to bed, so that's why I had kind of a strange dream. But if the same thing happens twice, then we can all we always tend to believe that that might be a message or a word from the Lord. So Pharaoh has two dreams. The first one is where he sees seven fat cows that are by a river. And then he sees seven gaunt and skinny cows that come and they devour the fat cows. And then he, then he wakes up. Then he dreams another dream and he sees this other one that's strange where he sees seven plump full heads of grain that are on one stock. And then he sees um, seven gaunt and, and, and gray and dead uh, looking heads of grain and they come and they devour the other ones. Then he wakes up and he goes to for the interpretation. When he finally brings Joseph before Pharaoh, I actually do want to point out, and let, let me read specifically what happens when Joseph is called. And this happens in verse 14 of chapter 41. It says this. So then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, he changed his clothing, he came to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said that you can understand a dream and interpret it. Verse 16, so Joseph answered Pharaoh and said, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. He Once again, he's looking to the Lord. The Lord is the one who interprets these dreams. The Lord is the one who brings favor and who will bring peace to Pharaoh. It's also interesting here. Obviously, 
you can understand perhaps the um, the ceremony of if anybody was ever to come before Pharaoh, they would need to present themselves in an appropriate way. Obviously, if they pull this Hebrew man right out of the dungeon, he probably hasn't shaved, he hasn't bathed, he probably smells. It makes perfect sense that they would clean him up before he was presented to Pharaoh, of course. But one of the other things that we can look at is that What's a, is there any other instance in the scripture where one is maybe brought, one who is maybe unclean or who has gone to the lowest of lowest depths, then when he's brought and raised up and brought before some sort of judge or leader, that they are completely shaved and completely cleaned. This is a connection to the cleansing of the leper that we will learn about later in the Torah portion, in the Torah cycle. Whenever somebody had leprosy, contracted leprosy, it was like a death sentence. It was like somebody, you had to be cast out from the public, you had to go to a leper colony. And if there was ever a cleansing of, if the leper came and he said he had been cleansed, there was an elaborate procedure that the priesthood was to go through to clean him up, to declare him to be clean. One of the things was that he was, he'd shave all of his hair, all, he'd change his clothes, he would bathe, and then there'd be this time of seven days that they would be, he would then be completely restored and be declared clean. And this was something that didn't necessarily ever happen in the history of Israel, save for the time in which Yeshua walked to the earth and cleansed the leper. That they And all of Judaism always describes, look, this is something, look, whoever can cleanse the leper, that's only by the power of God. That if this was ever to happen, that surely the Messiah is with us. That the Messiah has come and that the, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, is the only one who would be able to do this. It's interesting we have this exact same parallel. This is exactly what happened to Joseph. The man was in a dungeon, in prison, the lowest of low, practically a death sentence upon him. But then he is brought before Pharaoh, the king of the known world, basically. Egypt was the world power at the time. He's cleaned up, he's shaved, he's made clean and presentable and brought before the king. This is exactly what, in the same way that a leper was cleansed and became clean and presentable. We have this, and, the, and Judaism ties that to a work of the Messiah. Then obviously what's going on here is another thing, only by the power of God and the work of the Messiah, that a man could be restored in the same way Joseph was. So he comes and, and Pharaoh recounts the dream exactly in detail. It's written twice for us here in chapter 41. And Joseph then gives his interpretation. This happens in verse Verse 25, where it says this, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one and the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because the famine following. For it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because it is a thing it is established by God that's what I've said when a dream happens twice we believe this is an establishment of God and God will shortly bring it to pass 
Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land and collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities that the food shall be as a reserve for the land. For the seven years of famine which shall come in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. So this is the interpretation of the dream. God is telling, saying this is what God is about to do. The number seven is prevalent because seven represents the plan of God. That any time we're talking about seven years, seven days, we always know God is doing something here. God is The power of God is being represented. One of the other things, if you look at this, Again, Joseph being in the pattern of the Messiah, he is the one who has the power to interpret and communicate what the power of God and what God is doing. That's what we believe the work of Yeshua did when he walked this earth. That he communicated to us on our level what God is wanting to do. The way he spoke, the way he taught, he taught with authority. And he spoke in ways to where we could understand what God is wanting us to do, what he's wanting us to learn. That's what Yeshua did. That's exactly Exactly what Joseph is doing here. He is communicating and interpreting the plan of God and what God is wanting to do. There's also another parallel to prophetic nature that you have the first set of seven. The plan of God is that there will be years of plenty. There will be blessing. There will be abundance. And that then there will be seven years of famine which can represent judgment and tribulation and we can liken this unto this is how the Messiah will come to us the first time that he comes he will become and he will bring a, a message of blessing and abundance and peace but when he comes the second time we will be dealt, dealing with trials tribulation and judgment and so the way that these two sets of seven work can also be a parallel to the two comings of Messiah Yeshua as well so, amazing, once again, the parallels to Yeshua don't stop there, of course. In verse 37, we now have the Josephs being raised up to be in power. The advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? <clears throat> What we have here is Pharaoh. You got to remember here in Egypt, we are talking about Egypt, who was known for worshiping many gods, many uh, types of gods. And we see Pharaoh giving honor and respect to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph here. As Joseph is speaking, when he's referring to God, he's only referring to, of course, the one true God, the God of his fathers, the God of his family, the one who, the creator of the world. And that he is speaking and, and gives this dream to Pharaoh, Pharaoh being a respecter of all gods, he recognizes the power of Joseph's God. He recognizes that the Spirit of God is upon him, that only through him would he be able to interpret these dreams and give this understanding. And so Pharaoh, this Pharaoh, obviously was, he was a good king. He was, he was understanding and the Spirit of God, he recognized the move of the Spirit of God. Pharaoh then says to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you this, there is no one is discerning and as wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
he continues, Pharaoh then took off his signet ring, off his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed them in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee, so that he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh then said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneha and he gave him a wife, uh, Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of Om. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Immediately, Joseph is being elevated to being pretty much equal to the power of Pharaoh, second only to Pharaoh when it comes to regards of the throne. We're talking about a man who was just before he was in a dungeon. He was he, he, like a death sentence. He hadn't bathed. He hadn't shaved. He has no idea what's going to happen. And within a very short amount of time, he has been elevated by the power of God. And he has ascended to the top and the, pure, the highest authority of the known world. This, again, is just in the same way a parallel to Yeshua, where in three days from being inside a tomb, dead and buried, he is then ascended to the throne to be at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Same pattern and parallel to Messiah Yeshua, what happened here to Joseph and his rise to power. Again, there's so many parallels that are being uh, drawn here from the power that Joseph is now being given. One thing is interesting, the house of Pharaoh knew he was a Hebrew. He knew he was a Hebrew slave, that's what the, that's what the butler told him, and they, they knew this was a Hebrew. Yet he, regardless of being Egyptian or Hebrew, Pharaoh gives him all power and authority, and he begins to reign over all of the Egyptians. It's unknown whether all of the land of Egypt know that he was Hebrew, or if it was only known inside the house of Pharaoh. But regardless, this man gets elevated, he start, then goes out through all the land of Egypt, and suddenly he is king. He, his word, whatever he says, that's what goes in the land of Egypt. He's given all of this power and that no one can lift a hand, lift a foot, unless without Joseph's say so. When it says that he um, rides in the second chariot, very interesting. If you look at the Hebrew, this is the first time in the scripture that the Hebrew word Mishnah appears. Mishnah meaning second or copy. And this is what it means when he was riding in the second chariot of Pharaoh, that he was as if he was a copy of the power of Pharaoh. This is the other thing that this relates to also. This relates to um, in Deuteronomy, where Deuteronomy, the name of the book, means second law. And there's a commandment in Deuteronomy that talks about how when a king rises to power, he's to make a copy of the law, and that he's to read from that law. And that was called the Mishnah. That was the copy of the law, the copy of the Torah. In modern day, we have in Judaism, they call something called the Mishnah, which was actually the written oral tradition that was written by Maimonides in the Middle Ages that uh, wrote down and expounded upon all of the words of the Torah. And so now when you say the word Mishnah, they basically call it the, the second Torah or the copy of the Torah, and it contains the oral tradition. In truth of fact, when it's all said and done, the Mishnah was supposed to be an exact copy of something. It contained all the same power that the original does. Now, I disagree with the modern-day Judaism that considers the oral law written by Maimonides 
Pharisees. And when they teach it, they teach out of it, they study it, and this is what they almost follow as word, as the Torah. And some will say that, of course, they don't replace the Torah of Moses with that law. However, in their minds, they often follow it with the same fervor that they would any commandment that comes from Torah. I believe that's an error, and that's what modern-day Judaism has done. The original biblical example of this was truly to be a repetition of the law and repetition of power. With that in mind, we see Joseph being elevated to the same power of Pharaoh. And it said this, only in matters of the throne was was Pharaoh still over Joseph. If we're relating this to the Messiah, and we're talking about a subject that has been very confusing to many brethren, trying to understand the relationship between Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Heavenly Father. When the Messiah at times, he said, I and the Father are one. But then at other times, he then said that the Father who is in heaven is greater than he. And so many, so many of us in modern day have come to question and trying to figure out what's the relationship between the Messiah. Is he equal to God? Is he God? Is he less than God? And this is a great struggle for many people in their faith, trying to understand the deity of Yeshua. However, if we read here in the Torah, this actually gives us perhaps a better description of what that relationship should be. Look, when Joseph, he, when he walked the land of Egypt, he had all power and authority of Pharaoh. For all intents and purposes, he was Pharaoh. He was king. He had all the power. It was bestowed upon him. The signet ring, the ring of Pharaoh was upon his hand. He was king. In the same way that Yeshua, when he came walking this earth, coming in the power and the authority of his heavenly father, he is king over all the earth. He carries all power, all authority. Only in matters of the throne in heaven is the heavenly father over him. So when we sit here on earth as human beings here looking to understand how we are to worship the Lord, and how we are to understand the relationship to, between our Heavenly Father and Yeshua, we should take example of this, that nobody in the land of Egypt usurped the authority of Joseph at this time. And we should do the same when it comes to our Messiah Yeshua, and not to usurp any authority whatsoever that he has in heaven or here on earth, because only in matters of the throne is the Heavenly Father above Yeshua of Nazareth. That's the example that we have here. And that's what it means to be the second or the, the, uh, the Mishnah of Pharaoh himself. One of the other things that's fascinating here as well, you look at some of the details that are written here when it says he was clothed in garments of fine linen and he had a gold chain around his neck. So you can now picture in your mind what his attire looked like. It was clothed in white, beautiful, the finest linen robe you could find. And then a gold was put upon him as well. Do we ever have an example of Yeshua that was also clothed in a similar manner? Absolutely we do. Go to Revelation chapter 1. When we talk about Yeshua and had the revelation to John and what was revealed to him. And when he sees Yeshua, he saw him in a garment of pure white and he saw gold adorned uh, 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 across him. And he was 
surrounded by seven lampstands and seven stars. And here, if we're relating back to Joseph, we're talking about seven years of famine, seven years of plenty. And we're talking about the king being adorned in white and in gold. And so there's an immediate visual parallel to the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah in Revelation chapter 1. So that's, again, another fascinating parallel. When we look at the name that, jo- that Pharaoh gave him, I've been saying for this Torah cycle that whenever a name is given, it is a sign of covenant between two individuals. And Pharaoh is enacting a uh, dominion over Joseph, the saying that he's now make, giving Joseph a new name and that there's a new relationship that's being formed here, a new covenant that's being formed. What this name actually means, means Zaphnath Panea, we don't really know exactly what it means. There's not really a good translation. If you break down uh, the name and the words of the name, uh, Zephnath is very similar to Zephaniah, which means God's treasure or the treasure of God. Also, the root of that goes even further and says that which is hidden or a mystery, that like in the way that you hide away or conceal your treasure. That's what the meaning of that name is. And some have speculated that the meaning of Zephnath Panea means the one who reveals mysteries, the one who reveals anything that treasure that has been concealed. That has, of course, amazing messianic parallels as well. Also to the continuing of our story that Joseph, his identity will be concealed. It will have been concealed from his brothers as well. And that one day he will be revealed and the mystery will be revealed as to what happened to Joseph. So that's an amazing meaning and parallel. Others have speculated that truly the meaning of Zephnath Paneah means the Savior of the world. Now, of course, that itself has its own messianic parallels as well, because he will be the one that will be usher in salvation to all of the known world at this time. It will happen physically here with the collection of grain here in the land of Egypt. <clears throat> so what happens immediately following this, after uh, Joseph goes about throughout all the land of Egypt. He then, sure enough, it happens as Joseph said, there's seven plentiful years and it brought forth abundantly. And what happened also is that one fifth of all the grain was taxed from all of Egypt. One of the things that you might say is like, man, you can see government being enacted here that immediately this guy named Joseph gets risen to power. Of course, we don't believe that Egypt knew him as Joseph. But this man rises to power and then suddenly he starts taxing one-fifth of the grain. So all of this, many people might be saying, well, what's, what's going on here? Why would we raise the taxes on the grain and how will we ever be able to have enough? During this course of time, only knowing later on it would prove itself out that this was all being done by the power of God, that it's a good thing they did do that. Otherwise, there wouldn't be enough grain for the next seven years. As Joseph was carrying the grain, first of all, verse 46 points out Joseph was exactly 30 years old at the time. This is a young man. The lifespans were much longer than this at this time of, of history. And so here you see this young guy being raised up above all of these people. You can imagine the questions that were happening in the land of Egypt. 
So they do. They did all this. They laid up all the food. Verse 49 says this. He says, Joseph gathered very much grain as the sands of the sea until he stopped counting for it was immeasurable. This is an amazing, you see these words and you just, you immediately connect to other parts of scripture. You're talking about the fulfillment that God, the promises to Abraham that he will make his descendants as the sands of the sea. And so God is doing something amazing that is going to provide benefit, his ability to save, his ability to nourish all the people of the earth is immeasurable by no man. No man can measure it, no no man can count it, and so the power of God is not measurable by man. That's one thing that it connects to. One of the things that's interesting there, where it says Joseph gathered much grain. Some translations there say corn. What that Hebrew word there is called bar, which means grain. Bar is also another very interesting word. In the Aramaic, bar means sun. And so you can actually look, and if you want to immediately connect this to a great regathering at the end of the age, that the Messiah will go into the nations and and gather up something that is immeasurable. He will gather up the sons of Israel. And they will be as the sands of the sea, as it says right here and at, at the end of the age. And I can basically say, and I can describe a prophecy, that the Messiah will go out into the nations. He will gather up all the sons of Israel. And what he brings back will be immeasurable as the sands of the sea. That's exactly what Joseph did here with the grain in the land of Egypt. Once again, the parallels continue. And so then it continues on that uh, the land was very fruitful, the seven years of plenty. And it also describes that um, Joseph had a couple of sons that were born at this time to him, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so then the people started to come after the after the famine now came. And then Joseph said to them, let me read here verse uh, 54. Joseph said, the famine was in all the lands, but all the land of Egypt, there was bread because of all the gathering that had taken place. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened up all the storehouses and and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became very severe in the land of Egypt, so all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was so severe in all the land. So here we have this. All of Egypt, all the nations, they come to Egypt first. They come to Joseph, the savior of the world, and they come to receive the life that he has to give. All of this grain that is stored up. Now, who received the grain? Now, all the nations of the earth who came received the grain. Let me tell you somebody who didn't receive the grain. The people who didn't come. The people who didn't come to ask. If there was anyone throughout the world that did not come to Joseph, the Savior of the world, and asked for the grain, they did not receive that life. They did not receive that bread. This is the same way that we worship our Messiah Yeshua. That you have to come to him and ask him for life. You have to ask him and he will give it to you. The storehouses have been opened. He will give it freely to you. If you come and ask in the same way, this wasn't grain. It doesn't say Joseph distributed the grain throughout all the nations and sent caravans and delivered it. No, you had to come to him in the same way that if you want to receive eternal life and salvation, you have to come to the master, come to Yeshua, the Messiah and ask for the life in the same way. That's exactly what happened here. Now, one of the other things that's very interesting, if you go and you study the rabbinical commentaries of what's going on here as well, 
They have a very interesting theory that's going on. I actually just re- heard this recently in my studying for this Torah portion, that this is an opinion that the that uh, rabbis have. That when it says that they had to go to Joseph, and they had to whatever Joseph said for them to do, they had to do before they could get grain. Now you can sit there and you can say, okay, well he sold it to them, they had to pay. The rabbis have a very interesting theory. That one of the things that Joseph required of the people to come and get grain was that they were to be circumcised. Because you see them going before, before Pharaoh. They say, well, go, go, they go to Pharaoh for bread. Why are they going to Pharaoh? It's already been, he's, Joseph's already gone throughout the land, and he's already said that he's the one, his word goes, whatever he says, you shall do, and you'll get the grain. If he, maybe they came to Joseph, and they said, you know, we want to get the grain, and he started then doing circumcision checks at the, at the door, that it was saying, okay, then they might be like, why are we doing this? Why, that this was also because being circumcised according to the Egyptians would have been a mark of shame. It would have been something that they would have been like, that, that wouldn't be something that they would want to do. And so what it might have been related to was they had to basically plead. They had to then make a cut. They had to form a covenant before the grain of life was then given to them. So they might have questioned this, and that's why they went before Pharaoh. Again, this is all rabbinical commentary. Why would they think that this was possibly the case? Well, they also think this. All the nations start coming. All of them will start coming. Joseph being a very smart man, knowing the the wisdom of God in this circumstance, he knows there will come a day when his family will come to Egypt requiring the grain. He knows this will come. If there was a process in which they were checking guys at the door and this was the what they had to do as a procedure before they could get by the grain, then you'd have a group of a couple of men showing up and they were already circumcised coming to buy grain. That immediately that information would immediately go before Joseph and that way he would know when his brothers arrived, knowing that there is something coming in the future. There is a reconciliation that is going to take place. Joseph remembers these things. He remembers the dream that he had where his brothers would bow before him. He knows that the Lord is blessing him and now there is finally a means for that dream to be fulfilled. So he's anticipating the day that his brothers come knocking at the door. Now that story begins and continues with exactly that in chapter 42 of Genesis. So what happens here? We catch back up with Jacob. <clears throat> and he says this, when Jacob saw there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at, at one another? He said, indeed, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy it, buy for us from there, that we may live and not die. They're all sitting there, hanging on their hands. They're trying to deal with this famine. You've got to remember, this was a family that was generally blessed by the fruit of the land. The Lord has provided provisions for years for this entire family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and all of his sons, suddenly there's a famine and they're probably, you know, they're probably pleading to the Lord or seeing what was happening. And, and Jacob then, he has enough and he says, stop looking at yourselves. Go get some more grain. We obviously have none. So ten brothers go down, all of his brothers with the exception of Benjamin. Benjamin was the youngest brother, younger than Joseph. The only other son that was born to Rachel, his mother. J- Joseph's only full brother. All the other brothers are half-brothers, of course. And so the ten brothers, they go down to buy grain in Egypt. Jacob did not send his brother Benjamin, lest some calamity befall him. You've got to remember the state of Jacob here, mourning for the loss of Joseph, which he said he would take down to his grave. And surely he's not going to let anything happen to his beloved son, Benjamin, the youngest one. 
He'll send all the other brothers, but he's going to keep Benjamin close to his vest. So they all go down uh, to uh, Egypt. Verse 6, Now Joseph was governor over all the land, and it was he who sold all, sold to all the people of the land of, of Egypt. Everybody had to come. They all had to come and present themselves before Joseph. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them and he spoke roughly to them. And he said to them, where do you come from? Immediately he recognizes his brothers. These were all the ones who are older. Some years have passed, but they don't, the older brothers don't change very much in appearance over time. You gotta remember for the brothers, Joseph was 17 years old the last time that they saw him. And we know at least nine years have passed in, in this time. Two years in prison, seven years of plenty. And so at least ten years have passed. And so then, Joseph, being in disguise, looking very much as an Egyptian, as a man of the nations, and as a ruler, they're not expecting their younger brother to, they simply don't recognize him. That makes perfect sense. And so then he asks them, and so he starts to inquire, and he says, who are you? He engages in a greater conversation with these, more than just men that would come to buy grain. And they said they're from the land of Canaan to buy food. Verse 8, so Joseph recognized his brothers. They did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies and you have come to see the nakedness of the land. Immediately he starts speaking very harshly to them. You got to remember, these were obvious men that were obviously different from perhaps the rest of the nations. Again, back to the rabbi's theory, if there was something to do with the circumcision going on here, these are men who are very much different than the rest of the nations because obviously they are circumcised. He remembers his dream and they're supposed to bow to him. They had already bowed, but wait a minute. Remember the dream. It was 11 sheaves of barley that bowed to him, not 10. He knows that to fulfill that dream, there has the other brother has to be there, the brother Benjamin. You got to remember, Joseph was probably also close to Benjamin. They were the only full bro- two full brothers, and he was younger, and he probably loved his brother very much. But he's not here. So we start speaking very harshly to him, to, to the brothers. They then respond, and they're, they're very humble in this way. They're like, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. And we are all the one, uh, one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Okay, <laughs> honest men. Joseph knows whether they're honest men or not. He wants to know what they went back and they told Jacob. What, 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 what's the deal here? What, what's Supposedly they're honest men, then what do they say? And they said, your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. All right, at least they counted twelve. They didn't completely eliminate Joseph from the equation and only say there's eleven. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. There's the whereabouts of Benjamin. And one is no more. Joseph immediately now knows what the lie they had told was. They said that he had died, that he had passed away, that he is no more. That's probably the same thing they told their father. That's now what they're telling him. Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying you are spies. In this manner you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother. And you shall be kept in prison, and that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. Or else... By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. you got to remember, they said they're honest, but obviously they're lying. He wants to test them and know if they're also lying about their brother Benjamin. 
because he has no idea what happened to him. He don't know. He doesn't know if they were lying about him. If something did actually happen to him as well, he knows they're lying. I'm sure the idea that they put him into prison for three days, the number three when it comes to three days, is obviously significant in many other parts of Scripture. He then brings him back out on the third day, and he says, "Do this and live." All right, three days in prison, suddenly coming out, and this is now what you have to do to live. For I fear God, God, his, their God, the God of the Canaanite, the God of the sons of Jacob. He's speaking their language now. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And so they did so. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. They start talking amongst each other, and they're like, look, this is the reason why this is happening to us, because of what we did to Joseph. Of course, you know, it's like this is now coming back upon us. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress is coming upon us. Reuben answered, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying that do not sin against the boy? You see the argument between the brothers happening here. Reuben was the one that wanted to save him, and all the other ones wanted to, wanted to we believe Simeon was the one that wanted to kill him. Judah wanted to sell him, and none of the other brothers spoke up. And you wouldn't listen. That's what Reuben's saying. Therefore, behold, his blood will now be required of this. But they did not know that Joseph understood them. You've got to remember, there were different languages at the time. And these brothers are now speaking this language that they spoke and didn't speak Egyptian. They think this Egyptian ruler doesn't know their language. But Joseph, of course, does. He's probably spoke multiple languages at this time. Now, having been in the house of Pharaoh, he probably was very well educated up to this point. And they had been speaking through an interpreter, as it says in verse 23. But he understands the brothers speaking this. He turned himself away and then he wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. I mean, he is basically playing this out as clearly this is a work of God that is happening to him. This calamity. First of all, he pulls Simeon of all people out from the crowd. Simeon being the one that said that he wanted to kill Joseph. Reuben wanted to restore him. Judah wanted to sell him. None of the other brothers. Simeon was the oldest. We believe he was the one that wanted to kill him. So he's the one that's put in prison. You know, coincidence. The brothers are like, look, this is exactly what's happening to us. And then when he hears the brotherly argument and the, and the argument where he didn't know Reuben wanted to save his life. At that time, we, because that was a conversation that happened to the bro- with the brothers when he was in a pit. To find out that one of the brothers wanted to save his life, that was probably the reason why Joseph wept. When he hears these things and says that, look, there was, there was inner turmoil. There's hope for my brothers that not all of them truly wanted to kill me. He hears all of this now for the first time. You can just imagine the emotion and the, the, how overwhelmed he may have felt in this whole situation. <clears throat> so what continues on? Joseph commands that they fill their sacks with grain. They send them back. He continues to play more tests and tricks with them. He puts their money back in their sacks so that then when they go and they arrive at a rest stop, they pull out some grain and then every man finds his money still in there. So then they start to be worried. They're in fear of this guy. Look, they're going to think down in Egypt that we stole the grain because we still have our money. Again, this is just a this is just a, a big test that Joseph continues to to show them and to teach them, and they continue to talk amongst themselves. They go back and they have their grain. They go and they inform Jacob basically what happened, and they said, "Look, we we got to bring our youngest brother. We got to bring Benjamin back if we're going to go back there and buy grain. Look, Simeon, uh, he he's no more." 
He's, he, he's down in prison. And so J- Jacob, he's reserving... He, he, it's funny because it seems like he doesn't even care as much about Simeon being trapped in Egypt as much as he is worried about making sure Benjamin stays safe beside him. And so what it is, is they plead with their father saying, we cannot go back after the food runs out, the grain runs out. We can't go back unless we bring Benjamin with us. And the, Jacob, he is refusing to, to do so because of the grief that he has. It's very interesting. The Reuben does his level best to be the leader amongst the sons. He goes to his brother, verse 37 of chapter 42. Very interesting. Reuben speaks to his father and says... Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. When he's talking about bringing Benjamin back to him. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Now this is the silliest thing that could possibly happen that Jacob would never agree to this. It's like, look, okay, so you're telling me this. If something happens to Benjamin, say he dies, then you're telling me that I get to then kill my two grandsons by you? That's not any sort of consolation or that's not anything. That's just more killing. That's more death. And surely that would be the absolute death of Jacob to have to do that. So Reuben's not necessarily thinking this is what he's not thinking this through exactly. And so what he says is, but he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go. You would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. This would be the death of Jacob. Now, this is when Judah steps in. This is as I turn my page here in my scripture, and as I when when I read the scripture, I cannot help when I read this story, but I start to tear up when I start to hear the words that Judah speaks on beat to Jacob. I start. This is one of those passages that kind of puts a chill in the back of back of my spine when I see the passion, and you can see the passion even in the words that are coming off the page. When Judah now comes, as opposed to Reuben's asinine idea, we have Judah who now comes and gives a true plead and a true. He's starting to understand what true sacrifice is. Where someone who is willing to lay down his life for a brother without any sort of, without anything else in return. We gotta remember Judah, what happened to him with the whole story of Tamar. He started to learn some of these lessons. He started to learn what it meant to truly be a follower of God, what righteousness is, when it, what is, a, what is a righteous thing to do. The Lord has taught him these lessons. He now goes before Jacob and he proves that. Verse 3 of chapter 43 starts this way. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down, we will buy food. And if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongly with me as to tell me the man whether you had still another brother? But they said the man asked and he pointed about ourselves and our family saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And so he's explaining, look, he was he was interrogating us with all of these things. He knew all of these things. And we told him, according to these words, could we possibly have known what he would have said? Then Judah says to Israel, his father, verse eight, send the lad with me. I, I and we will arise and go. 
that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be a surety for him. For my hand you shall require him, and if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we... If we had not lingered, surely we would know by now we would have returned this second time. The father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels. Carry them down as a present for the man. A little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your older brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Here, the plead with Judah, you can see now the entire dynamic of the relationship between Judah and Jacob now is changed. Jacob now recognizes in his son Judah the Spirit of the Lord. To understand what sacrifice is, to speak in this way, to say and to put his life on the line for an assurity to Benjamin. He also, he throws this in there as well. You've got to remember Israel had some conflicts with his brother Esau when he came back into the land after spending 20 years with Laban. One of these things that worked for him was he gave a whole bunch of gifts to his brother Esau. So he's like, this is kind of a tactic that Jacob has, that he's like, look, take some gifts down. Take all the, the what we have from the land and come bring double money. Take the money that was given back to you. Appease this man so that you might, so, so that you might bring all both, restore Simeon back to us and Benjamin back to us and let everybody be saved throughout this whole matter however again Jacob he is reminded I believe by the words of Judah he is also reminded to turn back to the Lord because he then says this may God Almighty give you mercy because Jacob is holding on to Benjamin with by his own power he's trying to make sure that this does, this loss does not come upon him but you got to remember he's got to turn back to the Lord as well and remember the Lord in these circumstances so he does and he pleads to almighty God that he might be the one who brings favor back to this family and restores all the family back together so then that's when they finally decide and they're allowed to go back to Egypt so they come back and they bring Benjamin with them. They bring all the gifts. They bring the extra money. Joseph, when he sees them, he suddenly starts treating them like royalty when they show back up. And he sees his brother Benjamin. And you can imagine the, the, the passion and the, the love that Joseph would have when he finally seen his brother. And that is reflected upon what happens later. They show back up and suddenly favor is being given to them. He invites them to dine with him. And they show back up and they, they have a conversation even and say, hey, you know, when we got back, there was the money still in our sacks. You know, we, we didn't know what that was about. And then what he says was, he says back to them, hey, your God, uh, he's, he had given you the treasure back in your sacks. It was, that, that was the favor of God, even though we know Joseph was manipulating all these things behind the scenes. But he sits down and he, has, he gives them a banquet. He washes their feet again. More things that the Messiah did for his disciples. For eleven that sat there before him, he has their feet washed. He feeds them, he nourishes them. They sit down and they have a meal. You've got to remember also when you sit down and you have a meal in the midst of a famine, this was an amazing banquet. This was an amazing honor that was given to him, probably more so than anything that has ever happened when you're talking about a time of famine. They sit down and he continues to do more with them as well. 
One of the things is he lines them up and he lines them up by their birth order when he actually brings them and puts them in place to eat. And he lines up Benjamin as the youngest all the way down on one end. One of the other things that he does is he tests them again and he gives Benjamin, their brother, five times more food than any of the other brothers. He gives this favor to the younger son. Now, why would he do this? Well, you got to remember, Joseph is still trying to understand, look, is there still spite in these brothers? Is there still jealousy among them that that, that they might actually enact jealousy against the youngest brother, Benjamin, if he's given favor? you got to remember, that's what happened to Joseph. He was given favor by their father, Jacob. And then jealousy came. What happens if he does the same with Benjamin as well, giving him five times more food? He's continuing to test his brothers. As it turns out, they did not, there's nothing recorded that anyone was jealous of Benjamin receiving all of this. I believe all of them were pretty much just happy to be alive. Happy that this has worked out well for them so far. Happy that there's been, uh, that, that he brought them in, welcomed them in. And all these things have happened. He also, all of them now bow before him, and that's the fulfillment of his dream of all the 11 sheaves that would bow. Now, some of the things that have happened is that he also, he wept at this time. He had to leave at one point in time because he couldn't restrain himself from the emotion that he was feeling as well. But again, he's still trying, he's still having to test these brothers and see truly what is in their heart. So here at the start of verse of chapter 44 is where our portion will come to an end. And this is one of the portions that comes at a, with a cliffhanger leading into the next portion. Some of our Torah portions always end on a specific note and, and wrap up a thought or a conclusion and a new Torah portion starts a new story. What we have here is we have a complete to-be-continued version in our Torah portion that stops at verse 17 of chapter 44. This is what happens. Again, it's another test that is upon the brothers here. He loves his brother Benjamin. He sees Benjamin here and he's looking forward to, to he, he'd love to probably spend more time with Benjamin. So what he does is this. He loads up their sacks with grain. He gives them money back and all of these things and he sends them on their way. But what he does is he instructs his servants, Joseph does, to put a cup that belongs to him in the sack of Benjamin. And that he's then going to send them away and then he sends his servants to go and catch up with them to then retrieve it as if they are thieves. He's again putting them to another test to see what would happen if he puts Benjamin to the test. So all the brothers then say, we didn't steal any cup and whoever has your cup that they shall go back to you and be a be a prisoner to you. So they start opening up all the sacks, starting with the oldest all the way down to the youngest. No cup until they come to Benjamin's sack. They open it up and lo and behold, there it is. What was being demanded of them? What belongs to Joseph? And so all of this is going well for the brothers. They now turn back and they say, oh no. Here, everything was looking good, but now what do we do? And that is where our Torah portion ends. Right then and there, when this happens, that's revealed. What are they going to do that now Benjamin is going to be kept in the land of Egypt by the command of Joseph and that they're going to have to go back to their father without Benjamin? What are they going to do? And so, well, we have to find out next week's portion 
if Judah is going to keep his word as he said and he as he promised to his father. Now, when I said that this Torah portion is one of the most prophetic in nature, I believe this is exactly the type of situation and circumstance that I'm talking about when I'm looking forward to in the future the reconciliation and understanding of the Jewish people to know Yeshua of Nazareth to be the Messiah. You have to remember Judaism does not believe Yeshua of Nazareth was their Messiah. What we have here is we have these tests that are being done. All of these things. We've got to remember that these brothers came to the Savior of the world. And they were looking for the Savior of the world. In the same way that Judaism is looking for the Messiah. They are looking. And what they're going to come is they have to come and they're approaching this man. The brothers are approaching this man that looks like an Egyptian. He looks like he's from the nations. He doesn't look like they do. And that he is the one who is actually the Savior of the world. All these other nations have come to him for life. For life-saving grain in a time of famine. That's exactly what we have today in the modern, in all of modern religion. Christianity is the largest religion in the world where all the nations have come into a faith in the Savior of the world, in Jesus of Nazareth, to be their Savior. They have received that eternal life. When is Jews within Judaism going to receive eternal life? How are they going to come into faith in Yeshua the Messiah? This is a power only God is going to be able to do. But what will it look like when it happens? I tell you this, it will look very similar to this interaction as well. They will come to know this one, this man, this this Savior, and he will welcome them in. He will welcome them in. They will approach and they're like, look, this, this, is, this is what I've heard the nations talk about. This is what all the, the Gentiles believe. All the Gentiles believe in this Jesus character. And yet the time in which Judaism is going to need a Savior, they're going to be looking for the Savior of the world. And then when somebody presents this man here and it says, have you looked to Yeshua of Nazareth? Have you asked if he is the Savior? And they're like, oh, but he's, he's of the nations. He doesn't look like any of us. And all these things. All the nations have already come and received life from him. Might you consider going there to him to ask to receive eternal life? That's what it looks like when a Jew comes into the faith of the Messiah, when he becomes messianic and he, he starts following Yeshua of Nazareth as his Savior. That's what it looks like. And at the end of the age, what's going to happen when we want to see this entire reconciliation of the whole house of Judah connecting back to the whole house of Israel under the faith of Yeshua of Nazareth, what's going to happen is this. Yeshua is going to speak. He's going to speak, and he's going to speak in the hearing of everyone and say, Look, my brother, some of, one of you has a cup, has something that belongs to me. And who has it? What it's going to happen is that Judaism as a collective whole will say, Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, for years, we, we don't have anything to do with you. You're of the nations. We, we have our Jewish traditions. We have our holidays. We have our commandments. We have all of these things. And then if the Messiah would to inquire of Judaism and say, oh, yeah, well, what about that Passover thing that you do? You know, where you have these four cups and you have this cup of redemption that you partake of at the end of the meal and you have a piece of bread that you eat that you consider it to be the sacrifice of the Passover. You eat this bread, you drink of this cup. By the way, what's that thing that you do? Oh, that, that's, oh, that's of the Passover and that's of these things. 
Au contraire, the Messiah will stand up and he will say, that is my cup that belongs to me. That was my blood shed for you. And you basically, the entire promise of the covenant and the redemption of Yeshua lies in the possession of Judaism. And that will be a revelation to them when somebody within Judaism might come into faith in Yeshua. That will be the thing that will open their eyes to understand, you know what? You're right, that does belong to him. He is the Messiah. And it's also fascinating that the cup was found with Benjamin. Benjamin is one of the only tribes of Israel that through all of the nation, uh, um, all of the ages is still considered to be Jewish. If you're from the tribe of Benjamin, then you know you were of the southern kingdom, of the tribe of Judah, or the tribe of Benjamin, then you knew you were Jewish. So the fact that it's in the possession of Benjamin is consistent with this parallel as well. This entire story, this entire reconciliation, this will be revealed in next week's portion. When he will re- when Joseph will reveal himself to his brother and reveal himself to be one of the kin of their brothers. In the same way that there's a revelation that Jesus of Nazareth, he was a Jew. He came to the Jew first and he was of the brethren and he was the very Messiah sent by God to bring salvation to all. That will be an amazing revelation that will happen and will continue the story of Joseph and his brothers. And that parallel will be brought out even more next week. Like I said, this parallel between Joseph and the Messiah is uncanny about how we can learn of all the things that will happen in the future just by studying the stories of old. The stories of Joseph, the the interactions between him and his brothers, the way God granted his favor to him to raise him up and ascend him to the right hand of the throne and to be given the means to bring salvation to the entire world in a way and with a power that is immeasurable, just as the grain in Egypt was immeasurable. What an amazing thing the way God can teach us with these stories. And may we, our faith in Yeshua of Nazareth, grow even greater to know and understand how we are to honor Him, how we are to worship Him, and what it means for us to have a relationship with Him, Yeshua, as our Messiah. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on the Sabbath day. We thank you for the Torah portion of Maketz, the Torah portion that is entitled At the End. Father, we look to the future for a great reconciliation of the whole house of Israel, Father. As we stand, Lord, and we see Jews coming into faith of Yeshua Messiah, even in our generations today, and as we continue to see many saved through the salvation of Yeshua and those that confess to believe in you and your Son. Father, we pray that there will be a great reconciliation between all, that through your power, that the whole world and all nations might be saved, Lord, through your blessing, through your provision, and through the Savior of the world that you have provided. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for the amazing stories that we can study. May our faith grow strong in you. May we continue to minister to those. May we continue to uh, share these words with others so that they might know and learn of the amazing salvation of Yeshua the Messiah, your Son. So, Father, it's in his name that we pray all of these things. We give you all honor, the glory, and the praise. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. And now the blessing after the Torah.
Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chayalam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha-Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat. Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 Put a smile upon your face He's got the whole world in his hands So obey his commands And you will know peace Shall 